He's good. You can be seated, and we're going to continue our time of worship and prayer. But before, as we've talked about the goodness of the Lord, there's one specific thing that we are pretty excited about at Lakeview. We're thrilled to announce, and some of you have gotten an email this week, that Lakeview Church has hired a new kids pastor. So her name is Kimberly Heiss, and she'll be starting her adventure at Lakeview on August the 9th. She is a long-term resident of Saskatoon who grew up at Circle. She grew up at Circle Drive Alliance Church, and she's finishing up her time as the children's ministry and daycare director at Westgate Alliance. So she brings with her a wealth of experience in children's ministry, and we look forward to introducing her to our kids, to our volunteers, and to our church family. So this picture is of Kimberly and her husband Landon, and I just have to say. We have kids in the kids' wing again. Do you know how much fun that is? They're playing on the play structure. We've got the toddler room open, and the nursery is open for families as well. So it's pretty, it's just really great. So we're going to pray together, and I want to start by um, reading parts of Psalm 145. I lift you high in praise, my God, O my King, and I'll bless your name into eternity. I'll bless you every day. And keep it up from now to eternity. God is magnificent. He can never be praised enough. There are no boundaries to his greatness. Generation after generation stands in awe of your work. And each one tells stories of your mighty acts. Your beauty and your splendor have everyone talking. I compose songs on your wonders. Your marvelous doings are headline news. I could write a book full of the details of your greatness. The fame of your goodness spreads across the country. Your righteousness is on everyone's lips. God is all mercy and grace, not quick to anger, is rich in love. God is good to one and all. Everything he does is soaked through with grace. Lord, we think of the ways that you have shown your goodness and grace to us in this past week, and we are so grateful. I'm going to give you some time to think about the ways that God has shown his goodness, and then we'll pause and say, Lord, hear our prayers. together. Lord, hear our prayers. Sometimes, God, we lose sight of your goodness, of your creative power, of your long view in making this world right. We long for things to be set right, for your will to be done in our families, in our church, in our city, in our country, and in our world. And Lord, as we've gathered here at Lakeview, we keep hearing about miracles in the lives of Elijah and Elisha, these men of God from long ago days. And this morning, Lord, we bring to you the relationships, the issues, the places in our lives where we need a miracle, where we need you to reach out and make something whole, to heal to renew, 
we pray that your will would be done on earth in our lives as it is in heaven. And together, Lord, hear our prayer. Jesus, in these days when so much is shifting and changing and we are able to do far more than we imagined and far less, we pray for your wisdom. Lord, would you teach us today and this week something new about how you're at work, something new about ourselves and about these people that we find ourselves worshiping with at Lakeview Church? Open our eyes in new ways. Help us not to despair or to lose hope, but we pray for a sense of curious hope about what you are up to and what you are like. Give us a readiness to join in with you. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we are your people, anchored in your resurrection and your promise to return. Help us to live today as people who are waiting for you to make things new, who are ready to join in as you're making things new. Bend our knees to the hard work of prayer and worship and repentance and intercession. We are your people. We trust you. Our God, who is all mercy and grace, who is not quick to anger and is rich in love. God is good to one and all, and everything he does is soaked with grace. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. That was pretty lively for an August long weekend. I'm impressed. Well, welcome here and welcome to our newest installment of our current series, How to Wonder, Elijah and Elisha on Accepting and Attempting Miracles. I'm very excited to be sharing with you this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Janelyn and I'm one of the youth pastors on staff and I'm super excited that you're all here. So. I know that there's like a little bit of an elephant in the room. I know that Joe was his last week last week. And I know that maybe we're still feeling a little bit sad about that. So I have come up with something to hopefully help us transition just a little bit from Joe to myself for this weekend. So I have put together a Venn diagram. So there's a couple of important differences for those of us who know how a Venn diagram works. The things on that side are the things that are different. And the things in the middle are things that are the same. So if you might notice, I have a little bit more hair than Joe has. I'm also a little more vertically challenged than Joe is. But I will not have any stories for you about being bald or being Italian because that is just not my life experience. But there are a few important similarities in the middle that I want to point out. Number one, we're both a little bit of coffee snobs. Number two, we both have a decent amount of vintage looking cardigans in our wardrobe. Number three, we both drive Volkswagens, and number four, and possibly most importantly, we both have multiple pairs of the exact same shoes in our closet. 
So he has a gazillion pairs of Pumas. I have a gazillion pairs of Converse. So I hope that helped you to feel like a little bit better about the fact that Joe is not with us today, but I'm basically the same person. It's fine. So to do a quick recap, last week Joe talked to us about taking the long way, about making mistakes, and we saw Elisha get promoted as a prophet after Elijah gets taken to heaven. And then this week, we are going to read a new chapter full of ordinary people who have big problems with, like, some interesting solutions to these problems. And we're going to see what that means for us. And we're going to see what cats and jalapenos can maybe teach us about attempting and accepting miracles. Are you ready? Yeah. Wonderful. All right. This chapter is a whirlwind. It's a little bit weird, so I'm going to frame it up for you guys in a way that I hope is helpful. There's this TV show on Netflix called Life in Pieces. Have any of you seen it before? A couple hands. Okay, so how that TV show works is there are, it's one episode, but then there's four short stories about each member of this inter intergenerational family, and it zooms in on one of these particular members, and as it does that, it creates a bigger picture of what it's like for life in that family. And as we go forward in this chapter today, that is exactly what happens. There are four short stories. It zooms in on these individual characters. And as it does that, it paints a better picture of what it is like for the people who are in Israel. So let's start with the first story, shall we? One day, the wife of a man from the Guild of Prophets called out to Elisha. Your servant, my husband, is dead. You know well what a good man he was, devoted to God, and now the man to whom he was in debt is on his way to collect by taking my two children as slaves. Elisha said, I wonder how I can be of help. Tell me, what do you have in your house? Nothing, she said. Well, I do have a little oil. Here's what you do, Elisha said. Go up and down the streets and borrow jugs and bowls from all of your neighbors, not just a few, all you can get. Then come home, lock the door behind you, you and your sons pour oil into each container, and when it is full, set it aside. She did what he said. She locked the door behind her and her sons. As they brought the containers to her, she filled them. When all the jugs and bowls were full, she said to one of her sons, another jug, please. He said, that's it. There are no more jugs. Then the oil stopped. She went and told the story to the man of God, and he said, go, go sell the oil and make good on your debts. Live, both you and your sons, on what is left. All right, first story. Let's see what happens in here. So this lady, she is in dire circumstances. Her husband has passed away, and in that society where she really needed a male advocate, she did not have one. We also realize that she does not have reserves. She cannot just charge this debt to her MasterCard. She's not able to consolidate it. And in that culture, if you were not able to pay your debts, slavery of your family members was on the table. We also see that she doesn't have much. One of my favorite parts of this story is that she mentions the olive oil like it's a joke, like it's an afterthought, like what are you going to do with this? One of the commentaries I read said she had about like a flask's amount of olive oil, which wouldn't get you very far. We also see that she is willing to try anything. Can you imagine that conversation? Going up to each of your neighbors, knock, knock, knock. Excuse me, can I have every Tupperware container, two-liter bottle and salad bowl that you're not presently using? For what, they might ask. And you say, a miracle. It's great. It's wonderful. And we also see that she is able to break the cycle of poverty that she finds herself in. She is able to not only have enough to pay off her debts, but she has enough that she and her sons are, sorry, are allowed and able to live themselves. Okay. That's story one. Story two. 
One day, Elisha passed through Shunem. A leading lady of the town talked him into stopping for a meal, and then it became his custom. Whenever he passed through, he stopped by for a meal. And as it so happened that the next time Elijah came by, he went to the room and laid down for a nap. Then he said to his servant Gehazi, tell the Shunammite woman, I want to see her. He called her and she came to him. Though Gehazi, through Gehazi, Elisha said, you've gone far beyond the call of duty in taking care of us. What can we do for you? Do you have any requests that we can bring to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, nothing. I'm secure and satisfied in my family. Elisha conferred with Gehazi. There's got to be something we can do for her, but what? Gehazi said, well, she has no son, and her husband is an old man. Call her in, said Elisha, and he called her in, and she stood at the open door. Elisha said to her, this time next year you're going to be nursing an infant son. Oh, my master, oh, my holy man, she said, don't play games with me. Don't tease me with such fantasies. So, just as Elisha said, she does end up having a son, Unfortunately, in the blip of literary structure, he is already dead within a couple of words, and it's because of what the commentators presume was heat stroke, but we don't actually know. So what this lady does, she saddles up her donkey, she rides to Mount Carmel, goes to tell Elijah off, Elisha off, because she's like, I didn't even want this. I didn't want to get my hopes up. This was your idea. So she wants Elisha to make good on his promise to her. So what Elisha does is he sends his servant Gehazi. He's like, go lay my staff on the boy's face. So Gehazi goes and lays his staff on the boy's face. And then he has to awkwardly come back to Elisha and be like, hey, boss, that didn't work. And so then Elisha goes and lays on the boy. He sneezes seven times. Great. And then the woman is so thrilled and she falls at the feet of Elisha for saving and raising her son. So what do we learn about this lady? She's wealthy. She has an eye for interior design. She sets up like a nice little Airbnb situation for Elisha. How lovely of her. We also realize that she is resigned to her reality. When Elisha says, is there anything we can do for you? She says, no. And really, what should have been at the top of mind for her is the fact that she did not have any children. She did not have a son. And in that society, it would have been very helpful for her socially and economically to have one. We do learn that she did have a son, not for very long. And we learn that she knows how to saddle a donkey. I'm not sure that that's important, but I just love that fact about her, and it really makes me respect her all the more. And we also know that she's not going to take no for an answer. She goes to Elijah, and she's like, this was your idea. I want to speak to the manager. Fix it. I love that. She is my kind of lady. Next story. Elijah went back down to Gilgal. There was a famine there. And while he was consulting with the Guild of Prophets, he told his servant, put a large pot on the fire and cook up some stew for the prophets. One of the men went out into the field to get some herbs and he came across a wild vine and picked gourds from it, filling his gunny sack, whatever that is, and he brought them back, sliced them up and put them in the stew even though no one knew what kind of plant it was. So there's a famine, obvious but important. These guys, not so good at listening to instructions, but he was told to go get some herbs. And he decided to pick gourds instead, gourds that he didn't even know what they were. Quick cooking tip, you can sometimes sub out ingredients in a recipe. I would recommend Googling it first. I do it all the time. But if you don't know what it is at all, just don't do it. Don't go there. So now their good food is spoiled and ruined by this unlikely culprit that was described as a spherical greenish-yellow fruit with strong laxative properties and a bitter taste. So 
at the end, it's fine, they're saved. Whether they were, whether the stew was poisoned or if it just wasn't palatable, whether they were in mortal danger or just being dramatic, the point is, is that with a little action of putting some meal into the stew, they are able to eat it. All right, last story, you ready? One day, a man arrived from Baal Shalishal. He brought the man of God 20 loaves of fresh baked bread from an early harvest, along with a few apples from the orchard. Elisha said, pass it around to the people to eat. His servant said, for 100 men, there's not nearly enough. Elisha said, just go ahead and do it. God says there's plenty. And sure enough, there was. He passed around what he had, and they not only ate, but they had leftovers. So, again, there's a famine. Less obvious, but still important, because Baal Shalisha is a hop, skip, and a jump away from Gilgal. So that means there ain't food there either. So this farmer is super generous. He comes and he donates 20 loaves of bread and a whole bunch of apples from the first fruits of his harvest, which is incredibly, incredibly generous. And it's met with skepticism, ungrateful people, which is ignored. Because Elijah's like, just go do it. And not only are they provided for, but again, like the woman with the olive oil, they find themselves in a situation where they have food in abundance. Wasn't that neat? What weird stories that all paint a greater picture of what it was like to be a person in Israel at the time. The only problem is, is I feel like that picture's still a little fuzzy. I'm not sure what we're trying to get at. There's overrunning olive oil, a boy who sneezes seven times, a bunch of gourds, and a couple of leftovers. What literary theme is even there? I can't find one. But maybe if we look a little closer at the characters, because there's not much said about them, so we can assume that what is said is important, maybe we'll be able to glean some insight. So I have for you another Venn diagram. So as we can see here, the widow has some things in common with the Guild of Prophets. The Guild of Prophets has some things in common with the farmer. The farmer has some things in common with the woman. And the woman has some things in common with the widow. But as you will notice, there's not like a ton of things that they have in common. We don't know a lot about these people, but as we, I think we can see, I found more things in common between myself and Joe than I found basically between all of these people put together. So we don't know much. So, what's the point? Why did this story get written down? Olive oil, dead sun, a crappy batch of stew, and several loaves of bread. I'm not sure. There doesn't seem to be a theme. At least, not according to my handy-dandy Venn diagram. Does not appear to be a bunch of crossover. But then I started thinking, maybe that's the point. Maybe none of these people have much in common other than the fact that they aren't spectacularly important and yet they experience miraculous circumstances in the truest sense of the word. Which I think turns us back to these questions that we've been exploring the last couple of weeks. Is God Lord? Does he have this? And is God faithful? Does he have me? The answer is yes. God provides practical solutions to real problems like debt and death and famine, and the Lord is capable of creating life where there was death, he has this. And he is faithful. He has the average Joes of Israel. He has me. So as we noted, none of these people are prominent. They're not important. Did you notice? They don't even have names. They are at best identified by a geographical location or they are identified by their relationship with someone else. 
They are a people of low social standing, a widow, a woman, a prophet, a farmer. These people are ordinary people. Yet, their stories are written down in one of the most important documents of human history. Why? And I think it's to invite us in. I think it's to ask us to not only accept miracles, but to attempt them. Because Elisha worked among these people in such a way that he didn't patronize them. He didn't treat them as victims. Instead, he enabled them. He doesn't do the miracle for them. He invites them to participate. So beyond the similarities that I have listed up here with our fancy dancy Venn diagram, there is one more similarity that I would like to point out. They all joined in. These average, ordinary people joined God in the renewal of all things. These tiny, practical miracles that Elisha performs all required the participation of all of these people. We need to ask ourselves then, do we actually want to join in? Or do we want someone else to do all the renewing of things for us? Do we want to do this? Because it's going to require us to do some work. And I know, it's August long weekend, and you're like, Jan, are you going to talk about work? That's the last thing we want to be thinking about right now. But before you, like, tune me out for the next couple of minutes, hear me out. I do think this is important. Maybe, just maybe, work isn't actually our enemy. Maybe, just maybe, retirement and sitting on white sandy beaches drinking drinks with tiny little umbrellas isn't actually the point of this life. Maybe joining in isn't as taxing as we think it might be. Maybe it's actually even central to our humanness. Maybe we were actually created for this. So I'm going to give you guys some tough love here, okay? You have a role to play in joining God in the renewal of all things. Every single one of you has a seat at the table. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have gone to Bible college. You don't have to be rich or elite as we saw in these last four stories. Literally every type of person is invited to participate. So remember the tagline for this series, the story of Elijah and Elisha attempting and accepting miracles. Folks, I think we're really good at accepting miracles. I am not convinced that we're super good at attempting them. Because here's the thing, here's the thing, for many of us, it's going to take work and we have convinced ourselves that work is actually the enemy. So I'm going to widen our scope on maybe what work is a little bit because I know that work is more than just the things you get paid to go and do. I know that there's cooking and cleaning and dropping kids off at soccer practice and all of these things. But work is also this, rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and to flourish. So if we reframe work that way, maybe all of a sudden it doesn't feel so bad. Because guess what? These people in this story, they work. Gathering those jars, that's work. Growing a human, that's work. Saddling that donkey, that's work. Making sure that prophet makes good on his promise, work. Fetching the flour to put in the stew, work. Handing out those loaves of bread, that is all work. So, if we're going to join God in the renewal of all things, this is going to require something of us. 
not only to accept miracles, but attempt them. And if we're going to do that, I think we need to be looking for ways that we can do that to see the ways that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. So I have something we're going to do. We're going to practice attentiveness together, and we'll tell you why we need to. So can any of us guess why we're maybe less attentive than we ought to be? Why we've gotten exceptionally bad at it? Is Justin going to pull out his phone? You were going to pull out your phone. Oh, that would have been so good. I was going to pull mine out, but I didn't have enough pockets today. Our phones. Our phones just completely distract us, my friends. And I'm not saying that all technology is bad. That's not what I came up here to do. But everything about those little gadgets draws us in. The bright colors, the sleek design, the fact that it goes ding, ding, ding every time you get a text. And when that happens, you actually get a hit of dopamine, which actually makes you literally addicted to your phone. Isn't that fun? You can go home and cry about that later. So we need to actively fight against this because what it does is our phones de-incarnate us. And what I mean by that is, is they pull us out of our physical spaces and pull us into a pseudo-reality where we think that we're interacting with people in the world, but we're actually not. Hate to break it to you, but social media is not actually that social. So. I have designed a small game. I'm a youth pastor. Y'all didn't think you were getting out of this without playing a game, did you? So I've designed a small game so that we can practice attentiveness together. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. This is also for the kids because I know how hard it is to sit through a whole service. So what's going to happen is I'm going to put a picture up on the screen here. And somewhere hidden in that picture, there is going to be a cat. And once you find the cat, I want you to raise your hand. Really simple, okay? Sarah Stade, you won't crush this. All right, where is it? Raise your hand when you think you found it. Okay, Diane found it. Okay, we've got some Stades. Allie found it. My husband's still looking, apparently. My dad found it. All right. There he is. Were you right? Did you find it? Or did you just think you found it? Okay, I have another one. This one's quite difficult, actually. Where's the cat? Where is it? Oh, did we find it? Do we feel like we found it? Oh, Mel is like hesitantly raising her hand that she maybe found it. Oh, 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 there we go. We got more hands, more hands, more hands. All right. There it is. Did you actually find it or did you find a stick? Mel found a stick. Okay. Here's a fun one. Where's the cat? Oh, this one's easy, but this one's also my favorite. Lots of hands, lots of hands. What are you doing in the role of bounty, you strange little creature? Okay, last one. Where is it? Where's the cat? Oh, 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 there we go. Lots of hands, lots of hands, lots of hands. And there he is. Cats do love a good box, don't they? All right. Well done. See, you can be attentive. Give yourself a nice little pat on the back. You did it. Although, you probably aren't encountering gobs of hidden cats on your day-to-day -day basis, unless your name is Sarah State. So... We need to come up with a different way to practice attentiveness because we're not probably constantly going to be looking for cats in our lives. So another option, instead of hid hiding and finding out hidden felines, what we're going to do is talk about what we call in fancy spiritual formation language a focal practice. All that means is it's doing something that requires your complete attention and helps you to forget the worries and other distractions of your life. So maybe that's cooking. Maybe that's gardening, woodworking, painting, playing chess, you name it. Side note for my students right now, 
your Nintendo Switch and TikTok do not count as focal practices, okay? As much as I would love them to like really root you in your world, they don't actually do that, so you can't use that as an excuse next time you're scrolling TikTok for two hours. You heard it from me. Parents, you're welcome. So, myself personally, I'm not a woodworker. I'm too clumsy. And I have no desire to learn to play chess. That feels hard and boring. But maybe for some of you, that sounds great. But what I've been doing is I've been gardening, or at least attempting to. So my garden forces me to work. We've had, like, no rain, my friends. So I have to go out there and water my little garden boxes so that my veggies don't shrivel up and die. And honestly, some of them are still doing that anyways. It's delightful. But gardening is forcing me to be attentive, to notice the things that are working, the things that are exciting, like the fact that I now have six little jalapenos on my pepper plant, but it's also forcing me to notice the things that really aren't working, like watering my garden at night, which creates mold, which creates problems. So I'm practicing, I am working, I am joining in, and I am not doing it perfectly, but it feels pretty good anyway. So I wonder, I wonder what else I might notice if I were to pay as close attention to the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life as I do combing through my little jalapeno plant every single day. It is possible to pay attention to these ordinary situations, to find the cats, to find the jalapenos, the beauty, the magic, the wonder, if you will, of ordinary life and of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Because, fear not, my friends, we were actually created to do so. We just spent the last 20 minutes or so digging into a chapter where that is literally what happens in four different stories. God asks these people to join in on his miracles and in the renewing of all things, despite their lack, their hopelessness, their fear, or their disbelief. We can do this. We can learn how to wonder. We not only need to learn to accept miracles, but to attempt them. And in our attentiveness, maybe, just maybe, we might find the answers to the questions, is God Lord? And is God faithful in our everyday lives? So with that, I'm going to invite Darlene up. She's going to lead us in communion. And as she comes out, can we just take a moment to be attentive to the things that have been happening in our lives this week as we enter into communion? And as we focus on this practice of being together, of eating the bread and drinking the juice, use this moment. Be attentive to the miracles that you are accepting and to the ones that God is calling you to attempt. Thank you, Janelyn. Helping us to be attentive. Um, I just want to give you some instructions um, about these pods that you may have picked up. If you didn't, you can still run out and get one. It looks like there's juice, but there is actually a wafer at the top. So the first thing that you'll do when I give you instructions is to peel back the transparent thing and then there will be a little white wafer. And then the next time when we're drinking the juice together, then you'll peel back the other part and there will be juice. Now, I just want to tell you something about layers and layers and layers and layers of memories of meals. Because that's what this is. Really, it's just a little plastic pod with juice and a little tiny wafer. That's what you hold in your hand. 
But what this practice is, is a meal on top of a meal, on top of a meal, on top of a meal of people remembering. So even when Jesus first invited his disciples, it was the night he was betrayed, and he gathered his disciples around him, and he said, this is something new that we're doing it. But he layered on top of another set of meals. It was when they ate and drank the Passover to remember that Jesus was their rescuer, that God was their rescuer, and now Jesus was showing them that he was a rescuer. We eat pizza in our house almost every week with our family. Sometimes everybody's there and the chaos is unbelievable. Sometimes I forget the oil in my pizza dough and it turns out not quite as good as others. Sometimes the oven isn't working and we throw it on the barbecue and then the bottom is singed and the top is not quite done. But every single week of pizza is layered onto weeks and weeks of being together as family. And so sometimes we remember the specifics, but sometimes we just remember that this is what we do as family. So there will be a day when we look back and we'll go, do you remember when we took the Lord's Supper with little pods and there was just a little cracker and then there was juice that maybe we spilled because we didn't know how to peel it back? But it'll be layered on the memories of people who look back at the death and resurrection of Jesus and said, we're going to remember that because he's our Lord and we'll remember it forward until the day he comes again. That's what this is for. So let's take communion together, shall we? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Just like you're going to peel back that transparent, that transparent film. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way after supper he took the cup and he said this cup it's a new covenant in my blood so do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me Jesus, we thank you that following you is something we do with our mind, with our heart, and with our bodies. We think of you, we remember you, we wonder about you, and we live for you. I thank you for the sacrifice and for the hope that you hold out for us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So my friends, will you take a moment and just stand and pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are good. 
that you are faithful, that you've got this, that you've got us. And we just ask that as we go out this week, that you would show us what you're up to, that you would invite us to attempt a couple of miracles this week, and that we would accept the ones that you have readily given us. We ask for your ability to be attentive. We ask for your self-control to maybe just put down the phone for a little while. And we ask that you would just point out to us maybe what sort of focal practice would really be beneficial to our walk with you. And we pray that we would have grace for ourselves as we do all of this because we are not perfect people. We're ordinary people, but that's what we all have in common and you created us to participate. We thank you for that privilege to be called to do these things. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So my friends, love God, love others, tell God's story. We'll see you next week.